Sir Arthur Conan, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He's the guy who wrote the Sherlock Holmes series, in case you're wondering. Uh, one day he decided to play a trick on 12 of his friends, and so he sent him a telegram. And it was a very simple telegram. It had one line, fly at once, all is discovered. Fly at once, all is discovered. Now, these 12 men were all known leaders. They were men of great character and virtue. But the story goes that within 24 hours, all 12 of them had left the country. What if you were to receive a telegram like that? Or a note, or somebody were to walk up to you this morning, and they were to look you in the eye and say, I know what you did. I know about that secret sin. I know about that area of your life. What would immediately pop to your mind this morning? You know, over the last three weeks, today included in that three weeks, we've been looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is a list of qualifications of church leaders. And I've essentially had you take a magnifying glass to your lives. I've asked you to look at this list of characteristics we've seen. They describe church leaders. But I've asked you to look at your own life and ask, does it describe you personally? Because even if you say, I'll never be an elder, a deacon, or a deaconess, these are all marks of Christian maturity. So these are things that should mark our life. And I've asked you to, each time we look at a characteristic, to look at your life and say, how do I measure up in this area? Does this describe me? And if not, to ask God to help you to grow in these areas. Well, as we continue today in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the next qualification we come to is found in 1 Timothy 3, 2, and it says that an elder is to be able to teach. And this word literally means to be skillful. Now, it's not just somebody who can uh, accurately describe the Bible per se, but there's a Greek commentary on the Bible called Vines, and it describes this word, able to teach, skillful this way. It means not merely a readiness to teach is implied, but the spiritual power to do so as the outcome of prayerful meditation in the Word of God and the practical application of its truth to oneself. So this is a characteristic that, that speaks about not only your time in God's Word, but it asks you, are you able to then communicate God's Word to somebody else in a way that has application, in a way that has impact? I want you to think about how much time you spend personally in God's Word. Do you just simply read through it? Or do you meditate on it? Do you look at it? Do you say, God, how can this apply in my life or the life of others? You know, right now we're in a, in a cycle here in Texas with the kind of summer drought pattern. And if your yard looks like mine, it's brown and crispy. And uh, everything is, is burning up. I was driving through the countryside yesterday, and, and literally I saw fields full of corn that had just, they were, they were cooked. It was just burned yellow. And there were stock ponds you could see on ranches that were, were shallow or, or just dried and cracked up. Now, there were still some that had some, some depth to it. There was water in them because they were deep ponds or they maybe had a live water source that was constantly filling this pond. And it was a place of refreshment to the livestock. And I want you to think about your life maybe as one of those stock ponds out in the country. And ask yourself, is it, is it dried up? Is it stagnant if there's something left in it? Or is it a deep water source, something that is filled, something that has, has a constant filling where you're spending time in the Word? And the reason I'm asking you to picture that is because we should teach from our overflow. It shouldn't be something that we go and dig, but there should, you, you think in terms of, of God's word in your life, it should be overflowing. If I were to say to you, I want you to teach next Sunday, 
uh, or would you immediately go into panic mode? Or, or would you, somebody said yes out there. <laughs> that happens with some of our pastors as well. But if, if you say, you know, Roger, I'm excited about this opportunity to share because I've been learning so much in God's word. There's something that I just, I, you're ready to overflow and share it. Now, it doesn't have to be from a pulpit. It could be in a Bible study, a one-on-one relationship, as we'll talk about here in a moment. But ask yourself, is there an overflow from your life that you can teach from? Now, as we're learning in, in our times in God's Word, another way that we learn is in our walk with God. Just time walking with God helps us to have things to share. The next characteristic is found in 1 Timothy 3, 6. There it says that a, a leader is not to be a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now, the Greek word that is used here is neophyte, and it literally means someone who is newly planted. It means that there's not been time for the roots to go deep, for this foundation and this maturing as the the person begins to grow. And while anyone who is given a place of authority can become conceited, it's especially dangerous for a person who's a leader uh, in, in Christian ministry because there are lots of opportunities where you can fall into this this sin. Uh, and you don't have the maturity to handle the position. Now, we read that it said that it was the sin incurred by the devil. And I want you to, I just want to give you the background on Satan's fall. If you read Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 14, it says of him, this is God speaking about Satan. He says, you were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. God created Satan to be the highest angel, and he was created in perfection. But then sin entered into Satan's life. There was this unrighteousness, and the sin was a sin of pride. As you read in Isaiah chapter 14 and verses 12 through 15, there God says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. God created him in perfection, in beauty and power, and he gave him this place right there in the very throne room of heaven, but Satan was not content. He said, I want the very throne of heaven. And as a result, God said, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Satan had the highest position as an angel, and he was thrown down. Because of this sin of pride. He went from wanting to serve God to coveting God's position, wanting to be served and wanting to be worshipped as God. And I want you to think of Satan and his sin and contrast that with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, we're told that God's Son who existed in the form of God did not grasp equality. He did not hold on to that, but it says he emptied himself. You read in Mark chapter uh, 16, Verse 45, Mark 10, 45, Jesus Christ said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If pride could cause the highest created angel to fall, what can it do to you and me as mere men and women? What could happen to us? You see, pride not only damages our relationship with God, but also with others. And it can keep us from having the servant's heart that is needed 
We've talked about how as leaders, uh, they are to serve God and serve God's flock. In 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3, the job description is given there for elders. It says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. I said that maturity in ministry is essential because there are lots of opportunities where you may uh, have opportunities to get a big head. And some of that can come just from a Sunday morning. As you get up here and you teach and you preach, there are people who will come up after the service and they'll say, oh, Roger, that was so great. That spoke to me. That was just what I needed to hear. And, and words of encouragement like that are fine to give. But what I'm saying is if you're the person receiving that type of uh, statements about yourself, you need to be careful. I had a professor in seminary, Dr. Howard Hendricks, prof as we affectionately called him, and he knew this danger, and he would tell all of us as students, he'd say, men, that's called the glorifying the worm part of the church service. He said, uh, don't, don't you know, internalize that so much that you get conceited. He said, receive it graciously and then move on from it. Now, as I said, it's okay to give words of affirmation like that to a person who teaches you, whether it's your pastor, your, your Bible study leader, your small group leader, a, a person who mentors and encourages you, because there are lots of other people who will give uh, words of, of criticism and things, and so it's okay and even good to do that. But as you're looking at this qualification, pride is something that can, can affect people, because others will put you on a pedestal. And, and there's a warning here. Now, as we're looking at this qualification of an elder being able to teach, it's, it's not just limited to a pulpit ministry. We have a board of elders, and occasionally you've seen elders up here teaching uh, on a Sunday morning, but we also have a, a, a great gifted group of pastors who are all looking for opportunities to teach. And so where many of our elders teach is in our ABS, our adult Bible fellowships. These are the Sunday school classes. Others are small group leaders. There are others, as I mentioned before, that you can be in a mentoring relationship. And it's why you may say, well, I'm never going to be up here preaching from a pulpit. How do I use my gift of teaching? Well, there are many avenues for it as a, as a person to teach. One of those is as a parent, to teach your own family. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7 tells us, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. All of us as Christians are, are given the great commission in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And as you look at what that means, it says, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. This is a commission to every single one of us as a Christian. Now, as these leaders teach, first uh, in Titus 1, 9, we're told that they are to be able to exhort in sound doctrine. This word means to be correct. Literally, the picture is healthy. And what that means is you're not to feed junk food, uh, but you're to feed meat. The Bible talks about the need for steros is the word, this meat of the word. And uh, there, there are far too many pulpits where there's pop psychology or, or sermon-like stuff that is being taught. The Bible warns that people will seek out teachers who will tickle their ears. Believe me, there are plenty of times we wrestle with hard things from God's word that Frankly, I would love to just pass over, but my job is to teach the full counsel 
of the word of God, and that's what elders are called to do. In Titus 1.9, another qualification of a leader is that they are able to refute those who contradict. This, again, is dealing with the difficult subjects and why we need to be spending time in God's word. It's not just whether you're in a pulpit or a vocational position. Remember, this is a characteristic I've asked you to look at your own life. And when you run into a friend at school or somebody at the base or where you work who, who says the Bible says this or the world says that and this is right or wrong, can you go to God's word and can you show them what God's word actually says and what is right or wrong? Are you somebody who is able to refute those who contradict? Now, as we talked about in previous sermons on this, when we teach God's word, we're to do it in love, not blasting somebody out of the water. The goal is not to win the argument. It's to win the person, to help them to, to know the Lord and to walk with the Lord. Second Timothy 2, 2 verses uh, 24 through 25 tell us, And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. This is why Titus 1.7 says that a leader is not to be pugnacious. This word means to be a violent person, literally a bully. Ask yourself if you're a bully with the Bible. Do you hit somebody upside the head with the Bible? Not literally. I've actually seen that happen too. But ask yourself, are you somebody who is a bully when it comes to God's word? Uh, that's not what God is calling you to do. First Timothy 3.3 3 says that a leader is to be gentle. And in Titus 1.7, we're told that a leader is not to be self-willed. This word describes those who like to oppose or argue, especially with those in authority. Are you somebody who is always just looking for the next fight? the next doctrinal issue to, to go toe-to-toe with somebody over? Are you somebody who likes to prove to others how much you know and, and why you're always right? Well, that's not what God is calling us to do. This word describes a person who argues and opposes. And it says what those in authority is, is what's talked about. This, this word is used only one other time in the Bible. And it's found in 2 Peter 2.10. There it says, those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. It says they're willing to even fight with the angels. Remember when, when Michael, the highest uh, angel in God's army, the archangel went against the highest created angel, Satan, and they were in this battle over the body of Moses. Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. I mean, these were angelic armies fighting with each other. And that's how Michael, the archangel, battled. But there are people who are so self-willed, they're, they're willing to fight with everybody. And, and if, they're, if they're not even worried about fighting with angels, what is it going to happen with a mere man or woman? So if you're, if you're this type of person, you're not really qualified to be in a position of authority because you're not likely to listen to what other people say. Even if you know the other person is wrong, do you give them the courtesy of hearing them out and then gently correcting and showing them why they're wrong? If you're the person who, who says, I've got nothing to learn or it's my way or the highway, then you're not qualified to serve as a leader. Another qualification that's tied to this is in 1 Timothy 3.3. It says a leader is to be uncontentious. This word means peaceable. 
Now, as we're talking about these things, I want to make sure you understand something. I'm not telling you that as a Christian, you're to get run over, that you're to let people speak error. You're to, you know, just kind of give ground on everything. That is not at all what these characteristics describe. In fact, this word that says you're to be uncontentious or peaceable has as its root meaning military combat or strife. It actually talks about somebody who's willing to go to battle, but who goes to battle for the right things and in the right way. As I mentioned last time, anybody who's ever served in a place of leadership knows that you're going to be a lightning rod. There are plenty of fights that will come to you. You don't have to go out there looking for fights. They will come to you. And when they do, a leader needs to be able to do what we've talked about already, to be able to exhort, to correct, to stand for sound doctrine. And as we do these things, what I'm telling you is the picture is you're not one of those people that pours gas on a fire, that that blows it up or spreads it. Instead, what we're to do is to come in a a spirit of gentleness, trying to to win the other person over. Proverbs 15.1 tells us a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So in those times, we need to correct error, but we need to do it in the right way where we disagree without being disagreeable. And as you think about your life, ask yourself, does that describe you? Are you gentle in the way that you correct error? As you think about what it is you fight over or or will go to war over, are you majoring in the majors? Or are you one of those people that wants to fight over every little thing? As we talk about fights and focusing on what's major or minor, the next qualification is one that's led to a lot of debate in Christian circles because it it centers on whether or not a Christian can drink or not. Is it okay for a believer to drink? In 1 Timothy 3.3, as well as in verse 8 in Titus 1.7, we're told that a leader is not to be addicted to wine. And the way the Greek text literally reads here is, You are not to linger with the cup. You're not to linger with the cup. In Ephesians 5.18, we're told, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, last week we talked about the, the meaning of this qualification. is not that you don't drink. It means that you're not controlled by alcohol. You can be controlled by any kind of addictive substance. There are people who are gluttons who are addicted to food. There's addictions to pornography. There's addictions to drugs. So we're we're talking specifically about alcohol here, but there's a general principle that really says, are you controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit in your life? But alcohol was something that was very big in that culture. It's something that still is big in our culture today. So let's talk about drinking and being controlled by alcohol and things like that. So I'll start with a story of back when I was in college. Back in, in the late 80s, I was at the University of Texas at Austin, and we started a fraternity there called BUCKS. It stands for Beta Upsilon Chi, or Brothers Under Christ. We founded this Christian fraternity that we wanted to be a counter witness to what was happening at UT. In my time there at UT, uh, there were two pledges in secular Greek fraternities who were killed in hazing incidents where they were forced to drink so much alcohol they died. And so I, we saw these abuses going on on the campus. And as a young college man, talking to my friends, I said, look, you know, so many guys want what frats offer, this all-male fellowship. They want to belong to something. They want this brotherhood. But there's all this junk 
that has been brought in and these abuses, what are supposed to be friends and brothers, uh, they're, they're, they're hurting each other. And so we, we decided to start this Christian fraternity, Brothers Under Christ. And it's actually gone well beyond anything we ever imagined. We were, as young men, wanting to impact our college campus. Bucks is currently on, thir- on 39 other college campuses in the U.S. and still growing. There are over 5,000 men who are part of Bucks now. I can tell you that was not my vision when I and a handful of guys got together and started. I, I love that God has taken it well beyond anything we ever thought of. But in order to be this counterculture thing, one of the things we said is we're going to have parties where no alcohol can be present. We wrote it into the guidelines. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's a pretty lame college party, right? College party with no no drinking. Well, actually, it was the exact opposite. People loved it. We had secular sororities that were lining up asking to do mixers with these Christian guys because they're like, we don't have to deal with drunk frat boys. We don't worry about our safety. Um, you know, that was just one. Another benefit is people actually remembered the parties, right? <laughs> they could go home and say, hey, we had a good time and we don't feel bad the next morning. So those are some things. Well, during rush week, we rented out the student union there on the West Mall. And so we had an open party so people coming by who didn't know anything about Bucks could, could see. And so you, you could walk in, you could see this party, everybody's in there dancing, having a good time. And, and these three guys came to the door at, one, at this rush party, and they're kind of looking in the door, and, they're, you know, and we say, hey, come on in, it's open party. And so these guys come in, they immediately run over to the refreshment area, and they start downing punch. I mean, these guys are looking like they're dehydrated. They're just one after another, drinking, drinking. And so I go over to them and I say, you guys like the punch? And they're man, it's great. Yeah, what's in it? And I said, well, there's ginger ale and fruit juice. And, and one guy, is, he's on about his fifth cup. is like, yeah, yeah, what's in it? And he's pointing at everybody. I said, oh, they're filled with the spirit. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, dude, what spirit's in the punch? <laughs> right? And I said, oh, no, 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 there's, there's no alcohol in there. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And this guy just about spit his punch out. <laughs> And he goes, dude, what are you talking about? So I waved over a couple other guys, and we went outside. And we started talking to him about what, it, what we're talking about. Who's the Holy Spirit? What does this mean? And immediately one of these guys goes, dude, I am out of here. And he takes off, but the other two guys stayed. And we talked to them, and we walked through the gospel, and one of them accepted the Lord that night right there. And and I tell you that story because they looked at something and they were attracted to it. They said, man, these people look like they're having fun. And the world says that fun comes through counterfeit stuff like drugs and drinking and other stuff. You know, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Being a believer isn't about being a stick in the mud and a fuddy-duddy and life is just kind of boring. That's not what it's about. And so as you look at your life, I want you to ask yourself a question. Do people look at you and say, what is it about you? What do you have that I don't? Because I want it. Do people look at you and say, you have joy. What's the source of that? Do people in the midst of a tragedy say, why are you at peace when so much stuff around is falling apart? Is your life one where people look at you and say, what is it about you that is different? You know, these, these tragedies, this isn't in my notes, these tragedies right now, the shooting that is happening. Uh, you all know that uh, I was the chaplain on scene out of the Sutherland Springs shooting that happened, the worst church shooting 
that happened right up the road from us here. And I was there in the midst of that massacre and ministering to the families and others. And when Governor Greg Abbott came in to, to try to minister to the families, he rolls into this room in his wheelchair and he was expecting the scene of pandemonium and crisis and crying. And the room was calm and people were talking and there were even some smiles. And he, he called me over and he said, Roger, why is there such peace in this room? And I told him, about the peace of God that passes understanding, how so many people were praying for God's peace, and how the message of hope I had shared with the families just hours before about your loved ones were killed in a church, but 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and how that message of hope turned what's happening. And I share that because as you're praying right now for El Paso and for Dayton, sometimes you wonder, do our prayers even matter? Do they make a difference? And I'm here to tell you they do. What is it that controls you? And what is it that you share with others that can change the entire room? Does the Holy Spirit control you? Do you offer God's peace? Do you offer God's hope in his word in the world around you? Now, coming back to this issue of drinking, you know, I told you, can people look at your life and say, what is it that controls you? What do you have that I don't? But some of you are saying, well, what, what about this issue of drinking, Roger? Can I as a Christian drink? So let's walk through this question. And, and one thing I would start with is to look at your, your family history. Do you or somebody in your family struggle with alcoholism? You know, scientists and medical professionals will tell us that there is a genetic predisposition in some families to alcoholism. And so if you come from a family line where there is a struggle with alcohol, stay away from it. Just stay away from it. Why do you want to open up yourself to something that you know you have a higher propensity to fall into a destructive situation? Others may not have alcoholics in your line, but you, you struggle with overindulging. And you're saying, you know, every now and then I, I kind of tie one on. I get drunk. I, I, I didn't have control. So, again, if you know you're somebody who, who struggles in this area, then stay away from it. Remember, the Bible is very clear. It tells us do not be drunk with wine for that's dissipation. Now, others of you may say, uh, well, I, you know, I'm underage. Well, that's an easy one, you know. Because the Bible says to obey civil authority. And whether you think the government is right or not to limit what age you can begin to drink, I'm going to flat out tell you, God's going to tell you, no, you can't drink if you're underage. You know, obey civil authority. Now, maybe you're sitting here saying, okay, Roger, check, check, check. I, I, no alcoholics in my family. I don't overindulge. I'm not underage. So should I drink or not? Well, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. So you have to ask yourself, is there a profitable reason for you to be drinking? Now, you may say, well, actually, I went to my doctor, and my doctor told me that I should be drinking, right? Now, some of you are laughing. This is actually legit. Uh, I have a doctoral degree. Mine is a D-men, so this stands for doesn't mean anything, Okay. <laughs> In terms of medical advice, I am not an MD, a medical doctor. If you have a medical doctor who tells you you should be drinking some alcohol for a health reason, then listen to your doctor. Don't listen to doesn't mean anything, Roger, okay? 
1 Timothy 5.23, Paul, the Apostle Paul told the young pastor Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. There was a medicinal reason that Timothy needed to drink. And so, again, if you have a doctor who's told you there is a profitable reason for you to be drinking a glass of wine or this or that, then listen to your doctor. But, again, all things in moderation. Uh, your doctor didn't tell you to get drunk. I know that. So what about this issue of getting drunk and drinking in the Bible? Now, I have talked to many Christians who will tell me, well, the alcohol in Jesus' day is different than the alcohol in our day that the alcohol back then didn't have the same proof as we do. And while you can argue that, here's the bottom line. If you drink enough of a low-proof anything, you're going to get drunk too. So we've already covered do not get drunk. Now, I bring this up because what about the cultural issue of drinking? People, as I said, will make arguments of what happened in Jesus' day and our day. And they'll say, well, you know, in Jesus' day, people had to drink alcohol because water was polluted and they didn't have this and that. And, you know, so alcohol is evil. We shouldn't drink it at all. I'll tell you this. Jesus turned water into wine. God made water into wine. And if, it, if alcohol was evil in and of itself, then God wouldn't have done that. And we see where Jesus and the disciples would drink at times. Now, if you're starting to say, well, it sounds like Roger's telling everybody to drink, that's not what I'm saying at all either. Remember, we're walking through uh, things to consider here. Regarding drinking uh, and culture, I want you to turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Because we find a parallel situation there where Paul was dealing with something in his culture that you and I in our day are going to think was kind of crazy. But as you look at 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 4, in case you don't have a Bible with you or on your phone, there are a few Bibles you can use, but let me put this passage up. In 1 Corinthians 8, 4 and following, Paul says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. And that there is no God but one. He goes on to say, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So what Paul was saying is there was a situation where people in his day were eating meat. And it was causing others to stumble. And he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9 about this, but take care that this liberty of yours, being able to eat meat, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So what was happening is believers could eat meat. They knew there was not true pagan gods. There was only one true God. There is only one God in the world, Yahweh, Jehovah, God in heaven. He says, but there are others in the world that have all these little idols they've made. They're sacrificing all these pagan false gods. And, and food in that day was, was being sacrificed in temples. That's where it came from in the marketplace. So if somebody saw you eating meat, they're going, oh, you, you, you're in pagan worship because that food was sacrificed to an idol. And it was causing others to stumble, saying, I can't believe you're eating meat. You're participating in pagan idolatry. And Paul was saying, hey, look, there are no, <laughs> it's neutral. Meat is neutral. There's nothing wrong with meat in and of itself. Paul says, I have enough knowledge to know that's not true. But, but, because you 
struggle with it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul had a liberty. He had the ability to eat meat. But he said it causes some to struggle with it. So in terms of drinking, we're dealing with the same thing culturally. There are some who see drinking as a sin. There are people who say you shouldn't drink at all, that it's wrong. And so as a church leader, I will tell you personally how I approach drinking. For me, drinking is a non-issue. I'm able to control myself. I don't get drunk. Uh, I don't see it as wrong. But as a practice, I don't drink. Because I know that there are others who say, Roger, you're a pastor. And if you're drinking, it's a sin and you're doing something wrong. Or, well, if my pastor's drinking, then I should go drink. Now, does that mean I've never had a drink in my life? No, I've drank. I've had drinks. Uh, Recently, I was on a cruise with my wife, our 31st anniversary, just weeks ago. And they would, on the boat, say, well, here's champagne for a toast. And did I go, (gasps) I'm a pastor. I'm offended that you offered me alcohol. That's terrible that you put a drink in my hand. You know, if somebody gives you a drink, just put it down. You can, uh, cheers, and, you know, put it down. You don't have to make a scene. Um, I, we have block parties where I live, and we live at the bottom of a cul-de-sac, and so our neighbors will say, hey, can we set up the grill in your driveway? Can we come to, and they'll drag their coolers down, you know, they got their beer and their wine, and, hey, you want a brew, Roger? And, you know, I'll go, oh, I'm a pastor. I can't believe you're offering me alcohol, you know? Now, what's funny is sometimes neighbors who don't yet know I'm a pastor find out and they go, oh, you know, they're kind of, you know, I can't believe I'm holding a beer talking to the, the reverend here, you know. And, and I, just, you know, I just tell somebody, hey, enjoy it. Now, if they're getting drunk, that's a different story, you know. Then you, you can have a conversation. So don't be legalistic. And if you have a friend who says, I have a liberty and a freedom to drink, and that's their conviction That's for you to say, I have a different conviction. Do you understand what I'm talking about here? The Bible does not say a Christian cannot drink. Now, if you're underage, it says you can't drink. And if you're getting drunk, it says stop it. That's a sin. But we as Christians need to look at what God's word says. And a leader, remember, we've seen is called to a higher standard. They have the reputation of Christ and the church they lead in mind. As Paul said, I will give up a liberty of mind for a weaker brother. So if you're a person in leadership and there is something in your life that is causing another to struggle or stumble, you have to be willing to say, I will give that up if you're going to be a leader. Now, the next qualification we look at today is found in 1 Timothy 3.3, and it's just like alcohol because it in and of itself is a neutral issue. And what we're talking about here is money. 1 Timothy 3.3 says that a leader is to be free from the love of money. And in 1 Timothy 3.8 and Titus 1.7, it says that you are not to be fond of sordid gain. So it's not saying that a Christian leader cannot have money. It's not a sin to be wealthy. We'll talk more here in a moment. Uh, Money in and of itself is a neutral thing. Now, people say, whoa, 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 pastor. The Bible says that money is the root of all evil. You ever heard anybody tell you that? Do you know where that's located? Is it in the book of Second Hesitations? (laughs) That's not in the Bible either, right? 
There's this book, Second Hesitations, where all the verses people think. God helps those who help themselves. You know, money's the root of all evil. You know what the Bible actually says about money and evil? It's here, 1 Timothy 6.10. It says, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's the love of money. It's coveting. It's wanting so bad it becomes the controlling factor in your life. We've already talked about, like alcohol, you're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, not alcohol. Money is the same thing. Money is not evil. It's what you do with it. It's what your attitude is toward it. When it says that a leader is not to be fond of sordid gain, it doesn't mean that a leader can't uh, make money from the ministry. Now, there are pastors and preachers on TV and others that I have a personal problem with. I think they hurt the name of Christ because it's all about money. It's not saying that as a, a leader you can't be paid to be in the ministry. The very first time I ever got paid to preach, I struggled with it. I was still in seminary. I went out to a small country church, and I filled the pulpit for them. And at the end of the service, the deacon came up, and he gave me a check. And I said, what's this? He says, well, that's your honorarium for preaching. And I said, well, here, I'd like you to keep that. Could you just, it's a gift to the church. And this wise, older leader, this, this country deacon said to me, you're in seminary, aren't you? I said, yes, sir. He said, you want to be a preacher, right? I said, yes, sir. He said, you going to feed your family being a preacher? I said, well, I hope so. He said, well, it starts today. You've got to learn to take money for what you're doing. This is your job now. It's okay to be paid. The Bible says that you don't muzzle an ox when it's threshing. It says a laborer is worthy of his hire. In terms of even teaching, it says a teacher is worthy of double honor in terms of the pay. But what's not right is if you're the person who is fleecing the sheep, if you're, you're you know, all about money and you're, you're taking, you know, out of the... F- Enough said. I'm not going to get off on this further. You can tell this is something that I don't uh, have an opinion about. Here's the bottom line for any of this. The love of money. Does it control you? Is it what you covet? It's a sordid gain. There is improper gain from it. What the Bible tells us in Matthew 6.21 is this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you have to ask yourself, where is your heart in this? Is, is your heart pursuing uh, money to the point you love it more than you love the Lord? Or is your love for God greater than your love for the gain that comes from it? Whether it's pursuing money or whether it's what you do, you can say, well, I'm not in the ministry. Well, the question is, what do you do with what God has entrusted to you? It's a stewardship. When you worship God, you declare the worship of God. And when you give back to God in his work, do you understand I'm a steward and I'm acknowledging that everything I have comes from him and I freely give back to God in his work? This is the heart here. So as you look at your own life, ask yourself, is your love for God greater than your love for anything else in the world? Because this qualification reveals what our heart condition is when it comes to God. As we talk about God and our love for him, we're ending today by coming to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table, what it reminds us of is of God and his great love for us. How while we were far from God, how we were lost as sinners, 
God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth in order to give his life, to die on a cross, to pay the penalty of death that we owed for our sins. And in a moment, as the elements are passed, we're going to uh, have cups that come by. And as the elements are passed, I want you to reach down, and as you take it, make sure you take two cups. There are two cups here stacked one on top of each other. The bread is in the bottom, and the, the juice is in the top. So take both cups out, and then you can separate them. And after communion, if you look beside you, you'll see the little cup holders. That's where you put the empty cups in the seats if you're in a front row or in the seat back in front of you in the back rows. So as you take these cups, there are two elements. One is a a piece of bread, and it represents the body of Jesus Christ who is called the bread of life. And the other cup is a cup of juice that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And what the Bible tells us is we were all far from God. We were sinners, lost, separated from him because of our sin. We owed a penalty, a penalty of sin called death. And Jesus came and he died in our place. He paid that penalty for us. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord in Romans 6.23. And so as you look at your life this morning, you need to understand that you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. As we talk about these qualifications, there is no man or woman who is perfect. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 says, Romans 3.10 tells us there is none righteous, no, not one. From the pastor into the pulpit or the saint in the seat, we have all fallen short of God's standard of perfection, and we owe a penalty of death. And Jesus loved us enough. He came and died for us. Romans 5, 8 says he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so what we remember through the communion service is God's love where he left heaven to come to earth to take on flesh and blood Because ultimately he had to go to the cross to pay the penalty of death for you and me. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. That's why God took on flesh and blood. So he could take our place to give us the gift of eternal life. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to do so today. As the elements are passed to take the bread and the cup and to say to God in the the privacy of your heart and mind, God, today I'm turning to you to be my Savior. I recognize I owe a penalty, a penalty of sin. And I thank you, Jesus, that you paid it for me. You died in my place, and I accept that gift today. And the Bible says if you do that, you will become a part of the family of God. Romans 10.9 says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved, and you'll be made a part of the family of God. For the rest of us who are a part of the family of God already, who have accepted him in the past, The Bible tells us we still sin, we still make mistakes, and he calls on us to confess those sins. We're told to come to the communion table with clean hands and hearts to confess our sins, and God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9 says. So as the elements are passed, take and hold them and use this time to talk to God, to accept him as your Savior if you never have, to ask Jesus to come into your heart and mind to be your Lord of your life, John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. And for the rest of us who are his children already, this is an open table. All believers are welcome to partake of communion with us. Will you serve us, please?
So in our hand, we have a piece of bread. Representing the body of Jesus, the one who is called the bread of life. In John 3, 16, we're told, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have the gift of eternal life. Jesus came and gave his life so that you and I could have the gift of eternal life to spend eternity with him. This represents God's great love for us. How he loved us so much he was willing to come and die for us. And so as recipients of his grace, we need to remember who he is, how much he loved us, that he demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And so as we eat this bread, we're thankful for what he did for us. It's a reminder to us to be messengers of his grace to the world around us, the body of Jesus, seated in remembrance of him. As I mentioned before in Hebrews, it tells us without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. There were plenty of sacrifices offered in the temple. And Hebrews speaks of that as well. It says the blood of bulls and goats and the sacrifices offered could not remove sins, penalty. Only Jesus could do that. That's why we read in John one twenty nine when Christ came and as he was walking toward John the Baptist, Jesus pointed, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the perfect and permanent Lamb of God. The one who could remove the stain of sin in my life and yours. And that's what we remember today as we drink this, the juice that reminds us of the blood of Jesus shed for us in remembrance of him. Will you join me, please, as we pray? Lord God, we thank you for your word. First, for the living word, Jesus Christ who took on flesh and blood to take our place. We thank you, Lord, for the written word as well, your word that tells us how much you love us, that also holds us to to standards like the characteristics of leaders and mature believers we're reading. And, Father, we confess we all fall short of that. We don't always live as we should, and we thank you that in those times you don't turn from us, but you call on us to turn back to you to confess our sins and to walk with you. And so we thank you, Father, for these reminders of your love for us. And may those of us who have been recipients of your grace go into the world in which we live and share that good news with others who need to hear it. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand, please, and sing this closing song of worship.